three weeks down the road, and I am still not sure about a lot of the tricky details in 1 Peter 3, 17 through 22. I'm still with Luther. I'm not sure what the apostle means, though I'm not saying to the Lord I need more time. I'm just going to preach it this morning. You know, if every paragraph in the Bible was this difficult to interpret, I would probably give up trying to understand the Bible at all. Thankfully, most of the Bible is not this tricky. Most of it is clear and straightforward and everything we need to know for life and godliness. At the same time, even the tricky parts are the Word of God. Even the parts of the Bible that make us scratch our heads were given to us by the Holy Spirit. And we are blessed if we study them and apply them to our lives. So I'm not going to have all the answers to all the questions, especially all the questions I I myself have. But that doesn't mean that we can't get what God wants to say to us today. It does mean that we're not going to focus so much on the part that's hard to understand, but on the part that's actually hard to do. The title for this message is taken right out of verse 17, talking about what is sometimes the will of God for our lives as followers of Christ, to suffer for doing good. To suffer for doing good. Now that's not that hard to interpret, but it is hard to live, isn't it? Nobody in their right minds likes to suffer, but it's even harder to suffer for doing good. And yet, that's what Peter's been beating the drum about all along, hasn't he? That's what Peter wants us to do because we've read his letter. To do good, even if it means we suffer for it. What's our memory verse? 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Let's say it once again. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter says we're foreigners and exiles. We're not from around here. And we're supposed to abstain from sinful desires and live such good lives and do good deeds so that even though the people around us accuse us of doing bad, we live that reputation down and we do good deeds instead. Peter keeps using this this one word over and over again. We learned it last time, agathopoiuntos in Greek. Do you remember that? Agathopoiuntos, good deed doing. One word that just means good deed doing. Agathopoyuntos. He used it in chapter 2, verse 15. He said, if, he says, it is God's will that by doing good, Agathopoyuntos, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Same idea, right? He used it in chapter 2, verse 20. He says, if you suffer for doing good, Agathopoyuntos, and you endure it, that's commendable before God. Huh. I don't know about you, but I want to be commendable before God. Do I want to suffer for doing good? Not so much. He used it in chapter 3, verse 6. It's translated, do what is right. Same word, though. Agathopoiuntos. And do not give way to fear. Don't be scared. Do what is right. Do the good. And then he said in chapter 3, verse 
Verses 13 and 14, same basic word, agathu. He doesn't have the poyuntos, the doing part. He says, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? So that's not the normal thing. When you do good, normally people say, good, that's good. He says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, which sometimes happens, you're blessed. And now, in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good, poyuntas, than for doing evil, poyuntas, evil doing, doing bad. The, the point of this whole passage is that God wants us to do good, even when it hurts. Like if you were like, okay, I got the message, I wanted to, I'll just go home now, that was it. The point of this whole passage is that God wants us to do good, even when it hurts. Let me read to you the whole thing. After about two verses, it gets a little weird. Stick with it. Listen closely. Try to follow Peter. But don't forget the big picture forest for all the tricky trees. The whole point of this whole passage is that God wants us to do good, even when it hurts. Let's read. 1 Peter 3, 17 through 22. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. The whole point of this whole passage is that God wants us to do good even when it hurts. Have you heard me say that yet this morning? That's the message. The whole point of this whole passage is that God wants us to do good even when it hurts. Even when people want to hurt us because we're doing good. Now, I wish that were not a thing, but it most certainly is. In fact, Peter says that it is sometimes God's will. It is part of God's plan, not only that some of us get COVID or cancer or into a car wreck, but that some of us get persecuted and oppressed and treated unjustly even for doing good. I think this morning of our sisters at the PRC, I'm guessing, now correct me if I'm wrong, Rachel, Corinne, correct me if I'm wrong, but not everybody in State College loves what you're doing. Am I right? Yeah. You're doing good work in Jesus' name. But I'll bet you get some pushback from some people in the community. The Apostle Peter says, keep up the good work. What kind of good deeds does Peter envision for you and me? 
In chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3, Peter talked about submission to human authorities. Remember this? And respecting human authorities, even though they are often bad themselves. How are we doing at that? What have we been posting about on social media? And how have we been posting? Are we following chapter 2, verse 17 with every push of the share button? Show proper respect for everyone. Share. Love the brotherhood. Share. Fear God. Share. Honor the king. Share. And remember, the king for him was Nero. In chapter 3, Peter talked about repaying evil with good and insult with blessing. So the persecution started. And how do they respond? Demanding their rights. Fighting back. Fighting fire with fire. Clapbacks. Pushbacks. No. Bless them back, right? Bless them back. Responding to beatings with blessings. How are we doing at that? Peter says we should be ready to share the reason why we are hopeful even when people are furious at us. Even when they hate us as Christians, we have hope. How are we doing at that? As now we're almost a month into 2022. How are we doing at living as foreigners and exiles, citizens of the kingdom to come while we live in the kingdom of right now, waiting for the kingdom to come? I'm going to tell you right now that most of the time, we're not going to feel like it. Not going to feel like it. Most of the time, we will not feel like doing good if it means suffering as a result. Anybody here like, oh yeah, no big deal. Yeah, I love doing good even when they come after me. It's not natural. It's not normal. We'll naturally want it to get easier. We will feel like quitting if it doesn't. Sometimes we don't feel like doing good even when it does not hurt, right? I don't know about you, but I like doing bad. It's fun sometimes. We have evil desires within us that we've got to fight, right? Abstain from evil desires which wage war against your soul. And then when it gets hard, then we really don't feel like doing good. And that's why Peter is writing to these elect exiles, to this beloved family of foreigners. He wants to encourage them on, to keep on doing the right things, even when they suffer for doing good. And his argument proceeds in three big steps. Here's number one. To suffer for doing good, if you're taking notes, here's number one. To suffer for doing good is better than suffering for doing bad. To suffer for doing good is better than suffering for doing bad. Look again at verse 17. It is better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, everybody's going to suffer a little in this life. In fact, we're all going to suffer a lot because we're all going to die. Got to get ready for that. Peter says that it's much better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We said last time on one level, that's obvious, right? If you suffer for doing evil, 
then you kind of ask for it, right? Do bad, get bad. Makes sense. But on another level, it's not obvious. If you're doing good, how could it be good to suffer for it? Do good, get bad. What kind of commercial is that? Do good, get bad in return. What a deal. Makes you wonder if you're doing it right. In fact, it makes you wonder if it's really worth it. I mean, at least if you suffer for doing bad, you at least got to enjoy doing bad first. But Peter says it's better to suffer for doing good. In fact, he just said in chapter 3, verse 14, that if you do, you are, he used this word, blessed. Blessed. How's that for a thought? That's a distinctly Christian thought. You don't get that in the other philosophies in our world. You are blessed if you suffer for doing good. Our Lord taught us that in the Sermon on the Mount. Peter was there. He eventually got it. It's kind of upside down, but it is exactly right. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Didn't see that coming. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are, these are the words of our Lord, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, doing what's right, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Oh yes, it is much better to suffer for doing good. And we know that especially because it's the way that Jesus lived. He actually did this. In fact, fact, here's number two. To suffer for doing good is exactly how Jesus saved us. If you're taking notes, that's number two. To suffer for doing good is exactly how Jesus went about saving us. Look now at verse 18. It is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Verse 18, for, so here's where he's explaining it, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That's what we focused on last time, those words, right? Remember that? The greatest blessing that ever came to us came from the worst injustice. The greatest miscarriage of justice ever. Jesus Christ, the Holy One, died for sins. Once for all. The right, he was righteous for the unrighteous. Talk about unjust suffering. Talk about suffering for doing good. 
and doing good through suffering. This is exactly how we were saved. Now here's where it gets a little weird. In the second half of verse 18. Look at that. He, Christ, was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now stop there for just a second. Here's where it gets a little tricky. Um, every phrase here has trickiness to it, both in the Greek and in the English. Okay? In fact, it's, it's easier to understand in the English. It's harder to translate because you can go in different ways here. There are three big questions that we always ask when we look at this passage. They are, who are these spirits in prison? Right? Who are they? Second, when did Christ go preach to the spirits in prison? When was that? Third, what did Christ preach to the spirits in prison? Okay, so who, when, and what? Those are the questions. And there are three major interpretations, each with different answers to all three questions, okay, in the history of the church. And I'm really not sure which one of them is right, if any of them. There are about 40 variations on the three uh, main interpretations, and one scholar has calculated there are actually 180 different combinations of various details coming together here. I don't know what you have been taught about this passage, except I, I taught it 20 years ago. I remember what, you, what I said then, but I don't know what you've been what you've thought of this before. I can see all three of the major interpretations being right, and I can also see all three of them being wrong. Passages like this one are good at keeping us humble. One leading interpretation with a lot going for it says that the spirits are fallen angels that sinned before the flood in the book of Genesis and that Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, went to where they are forever held in prison and preached to them his victory over sin, death, and their boss, Satan. Have you heard this one before? The words in verse 19 translated through whom in your NIV can actually also be translated after which. So after the resurrection, Jesus would have proclaimed to these disobedient demonic spirits their ultimate demise. People who adopt that interpretation point out historical parallels in the extra-biblical book First Enoch, which the Apostle Peter quotes directly in his second letter, Second Peter. Now, I'm not going to get into the weeds of all this, but let me point out to you how this interpretation would fit Peter's bigger point. Jesus was put to death in the body. Yes, suffering, unimaginable suffering. For doing good, and doing good through his suffering. But that was not the end. At the cross, Jesus was defeating death and demons. And when he was made alive by or in the Spirit, he got to proclaim that over all the demons. To suffer for doing good is exactly how Jesus won and saved us. You see that? Now, a second major interpretation says that these spirits are human spirits. The word spirit could be talking about us as humans. Human spirits, the spirits of disobedient humans from the days of Noah, kept in prison in Sheol, 
Hebrew for the place of the dead. Also sometimes, sometimes called Hades in Greek. And in this interpretation, Jesus Christ, between his death and his resurrection, so basically on what we often call Holy Saturday, between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, on that day, he descended to the place of the dead and preached the good news of his victory to those sinful humans. Now, that does not mean that he was giving them a second chance. Just like in the first interpretation with the permanently fallen angels, Jesus would be proclaiming his vindication and victory to those who had irrevocably rejected him. And you know, there are a lot of passages like that in the book of Revelation. This second interpretation is the interpretation that jibes the most with John's revelation, the apocalypse. It also fits with the phrase we say in the Apostles' Creed, he descended to the dead. Not to suffer there but to announce his victory and the reversal of the great injustice. Now, do you see how that interpretation fits with Peter's main point? Don't miss the forest for the trees. The injustice will be undone, and we will be saved. Isn't that wonderful? The injustice will be undone, and we will be saved. To suffer for doing good is exactly how Jesus won his victory and saved us. Now the third major interpretation is also quite ancient, but it's also a little different from the other two. This is the one I came to adopt 20 years ago when I preached 1 Peter to you the first time. I'm probably a little less confident in it these days than I was 20 years ago, but it still makes sense to me. Let me share it with you, see what you think. In this interpretation, the spirits are also human spirits, the, the ones who disobeyed back in the days of Noah, Genesis chapter 6. But the time when Christ preached to them was back then, in Genesis chapter 6. Christ preached to them by the Holy Spirit. You see how you could get that of verses 18 and 19? He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom, the Spirit, he also went and preached to the spirits who are now in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. You see how that works? So, so they are in prison now because they disobeyed then, but Christ was preaching to them then by the Spirit through Noah when Noah was preaching to them about the judgment to come. You follow me? Clear as mud? Now you know what my last couple weeks have been like. You see how it would work? To me, it kind of sounds like chapter 1, verse 11 that we read back in the fall when it said that the Spirit of Christ was speaking through the Old Testament prophets. And it draws on what Peter says about Noah in his second letter when he calls him a preacher, same word for preaching, of righteousness, doing right. That's in 2 Peter 2.5. Christ was preaching by the Spirit through Noah in the days of Noah while God was being so incredibly patient with everybody. And he was preaching the judgment to come on sin and salvation to all who would come into the ark with him and be rescued. Now this interpretation has problems as well. But think about the parallels between Noah's situation and the situation of his readers, of the readers of Peter's day. Noah was trying to do good, and he was suffering for it. That's a parallel. 
The people around Noah were evil and ungodly, and they weren't listening. And I'm sure that Noah often felt like giving up. I'm sure he felt alone. Noah and his family were such a small minority in a great big sea of ungodliness. They were foreigners and exiles, so to speak. They were probably persecuted. They probably laughed at and insulted for trusting God and building a mammoth boat. The Christians to whom Peter were writing were receiving insult and evil and perhaps ridicule as well. I'm sure they felt often like giving up. So Noah felt like giving up. Peter's readers felt like giving up. You feel it may be like giving up? Noah kept on doing good. Building the ark. And he was saved. Verse 20. In it, the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Now stop there. Who are the eight? You got Noah and Mrs. Noah, right? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Mrs. Shem, Mrs. Ham, and Mrs. Japheth, right? Eight people. Just eight people were saved. But look at it a different way. Eight people were saved through water. They made it by coming into the ark. Now, see where Peter goes next. He's intent on connecting this to our salvation. Stay with him. Verse 21. And this water of judgment symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Now stop there. This verse is also difficult to interpret. Not nearly as difficult as verses 19 and 20, but still hard. Try to follow his train of thought. And this water, this water of death, that was safely traversed by the people in the ark, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. He's saying that the waters which Noah's ark went through were symbolic. I think he means like foreshadowing or typology. They pointed to something greater that was somehow like them. How, how, is it, how are those waters like baptism? Did you grab your directory when you came in this morning? Everybody got, you saw your box out there, your box had moved. You're like, okay, Mitchell, that's down here. Oh, I'm, I'm not in the same place I was last week. And then in your box was a directory. Did you, everybody grab your directory? Any directories yet? Oh, you are, you're those check your box on the way out people, aren't you? Okay, I can see how this is. Well, when you look at your directory, there is on it a beautiful picture. Marilyn posted a picture of Copper's baptism on the front of our directory this year, which was one of the high points of 2021 for our church family. It's copper joyfully coming up out of the waters of baptism, out in that field over there, right? The, with the, the swimming pool we filled up with the hillbilly heater with the water, and there's whoosh coming up, and Cody and I are pulling up out of the water, and everybody is so happy. It's a picture of salvation. We know that baptism is also a symbol for salvation. But it is such a symbol that you can use the symbol itself to refer to the actual thing, like shorthand. 
I think that's what Peter means when he says that baptism now saves you. He doesn't mean that getting dunked confers salvation like some kind of magic trick. We weren't saving copper out there. He means that baptism pictures that salvation so perfectly that you can use it as shorthand for your salvation itself. That's why he immediately explains his statement to eliminate the wrong ideas about it. Look at verse 21. Baptism that now saves you, not, don't get any dumb ideas in your head, not the removal of dirt from the body, not an external washing, not the physical rite itself, but, he says, the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Or the Greek here is hard to translate. It could also be translated the prayer for a good conscience from God. Water baptism, therefore, is a heart thing. It ultimately points to the heart of the one being baptized. Either it says, in my baptism, I now thank you for my salvation and I pledge to live out of it with a good conscience, doing good. Or it says, in my baptism, I now picture my asking you for salvation, a cleansing of my conscience, forgiveness of my sins. Either way, baptism is a heart thing symbolized by going down into the waters of death in Christ and coming back out safe in Christ. You still with me? You see how that's like the ark? Go back up the verses now. You see how that's like the ark? Everybody went into the water in Genesis 6, but only eight people came out of it alive. Only those that had come into the ark were saved. And that's a picture of what baptism pictures. Everyone dies, but only those who are dead in Christ will come out of it truly alive. Now again, don't miss the big forest for the tricky trees. Do you see how this advances Peter's main point? To suffer for doing good is exactly how Jesus saved us. He plunged into the water without an ark. He died the death we deserved. And if we are in him, then we're saved. He was put to death in the body and was brought, and that brought us safely to God. Like the ark. His suffering saved us. If you are saved at all, this is how you were saved. Are you saved? We are saved by grace through our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Listen to verse 18 again. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Have you been brought to God? If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your own Savior, I invite you to do so right now. He was put to death in the body for your sins. He suffered for doing good, and by suffering, He was doing good. He was saving you. And that's what your baptism pictures. Have you been baptized? Some people treat baptism as optional something only some people do if they really feel like it. That's good enough for Bev. It's good enough for Copper. But, eh, I don't know. I don't know about me. I'll think about it. Maybe later. 
That's the exact opposite of how the Bible treats it. The Bible says that baptism is commanded by our Lord of all of his disciples. The Bible assumes baptism of all believers, so much so that it uses the word as shorthand for our salvation. It's super important. It's not magic. There's nothing in the water that cleanses us. Peter says it's not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not the rite or the ritual. It's what baptism pictures that saves us. It's a symbol of what God has done and is doing in our hearts. But what a powerful symbol. And what a symbol of power. Because it's not just the suffering and death of Christ that's pictured going down into the water. But it's also the resurrection coming out. Coming back up to life like copper. Up out of the pool. Look, look again at verse 21. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not by what you or I have done or will do, but by what Jesus has done for us in dying and rising again. That is power. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you see what that means for suffering? For doing good? It means that it's all worth it. <laughs> it was worth it for Jesus. And it'll be worth it for you and me forever. Last point, number three. To suffer for doing good is worth it forever. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that this morning. Rachel, Corinne, to suffer for doing what is good is worth it forever. Keep it up. Jesus has shown us the way. Now, I am certain that Jesus did not feel like doing good and suffering on the cross. Jesus was no masochist. Just like Noah didn't feel like it, just like Peter's readers didn't feel like it, just like you and I don't feel like doing good and suffering for it. But Jesus saw where it was all going. Jesus saw how his suffering would bring us to God. Jesus saw how his suffering would not be the end. Jesus saw how his suffering would actually win the victory over sin and death and Satan and all of his minions. And Jesus saw that he would, on the third day, rise again and then ascend and be exalted forever. Verse 22, last verse. Christ has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. He won. He was vindicated. He triumphed. He stands in the place of ultimate blessing. He is exalted above all at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers and submission to Him. Jesus submitted to evil rulers and even died at their hands. But now every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Suffering is the path to glory. We've got to get that into our heads. Suffering is the path to glory. That was the name of my sermon title 20 years ago on this text. Suffering is the path to glory, and Jesus has blazed the trail. We don't like it. We don't have to like it. We aren't called to enjoy suffering. We are called to do good and to keep on doing good and sometimes to endure suffering for doing good.
But make no mistake, it is worth it. It is so worth it, brothers and sisters. Jesus knew that. It was predicted in the Old Testament. The Spirit of Christ was predicting the, spirit, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The glories of being in heaven at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Crowned with every crown. And if it was worth it to Jesus, He says it'll be worth it to you and me as well. So let's keep on doing good no matter what. Amen? Amen.